In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. It's time for Sex Talk with Lou. Lou Paget on Toginet. So, have you ever wondered if you're normal or why you feel distant from your partner? Why they keep doing that? Want to recreate a truly connected relationship? Or wondered, how do I tell my partner or kids about things? Then this is your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Lou Paget is a certified sex educator, an international best-selling author, and not only will Lou and her guests discuss the most current research, they will put you at the head of the class on good, solid, scientifically-based information and how it will impact you and your family. Known for delivering information about sexuality and relationships sans the sleaze factor while retaining all the accuracy, fun, and the you're kidding factor. Let's get to it. Sex Talk with Lou on Toginet. And now, here's your host, Lou Paget. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being with us this evening. I'm Lou Paget, and my guest this evening is Dr. Hernando Chavez, and he is a colleague of mine. And the reason that I asked him to be a guest this evening is that I feel that he can give a unique perspective for people coming into the field of sexuality education and sex therapy, and also from two standpoints. One, he is a Latin male, and secondly, he also is like that first wave of young sexologists where there is now a field that is much broader and much more accessible for people. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce my guest. Hernando, I'm assuming you're on the line. I'm here, Lou. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well, thank you. Now, one of the things that I thought you could, because for myself, I've been in the field now for almost like 15 years, and when I first started writing my books and doing my seminars, there really wasn't anything out there in the way that there are many more support and many more um, various uh, certifying venues that you can go if this is an area that's of interest for you. So my first question for you is, what had you choose the field of sexuality and what had you choose where you went to do your training? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Actually, I was lucky enough to fall into the field uh, because (laughs) I... um, it was you know, one of those childhood dreams where you grow up and say, I wanted to be a Planned Parenthood educator or a sex therapist, but it wasn't something I took necessarily so seriously. And I didn't realize it was an actual profession that we could embark on. So I would grow up, you know, wanting to be, once we passed, like the race car driver, the basketball player, and, the, and the so on and so on, I got to a point where I realized I have to be somewhere in corporate America in a cubicle. And that was mm-hmm. the focus I was looking for. And I tried that after college. I actually went into psychology because my girlfriend was in psychology. <laughs> so we did the same classes. And basically, I, I kind of you know stole her major in a sense. Um, but then afterwards, I worked at Corporate America for a good six months to a year. And it was, for me, it was, just wasn't the right fit. It was a very mundane experience. And 
I, I still have phobic reactions to cubicles. <laughs> uh, so, luckily, I, I went into marriage and family therapy as a master's program and then into a human sexuality program. Um, initially, I wanted to be a therapist focusing on uh, childhood and uh, childhood issues. So I was working with eating disorders. I was working with teenagers uh, on relationship issues and um, never even considered sex therapy until I started feeling a bit of burnout when it came to traditional therapy. And mm-hmm. thankfully, there was this new, uh, um, amazing menu of, of sex therapy, which revitalized my entire perspective. And thankfully so, because I love what we do. I well, I have to admit, I, I could not agree with you more that, I mean, really what we do on a day-to-day basis is give people information that makes them feel good about themselves or validate something. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that is just people are so happy to improve their sex life and to give them some type of information, education can do such amazing things for people um, in their lives, and it's so fulfilling. It feels great to see that occur in people. And, and you know, the other thing, you know, and we've spoken about this before, Merely giving people information about sexuality, you know, that's kind of like here. Here is a box, make a chocolate cake. But what we do is it's not just this is about your sex life. It's about every other part of who. And my focus in my work is sexual health. And our health and our sexual health, to me, cannot be separated. And that comes from comments of, uh, Dr. David Satcher, who is the former Surgeon General of the U.S. And when we do some of our things, and I'm sure you would agree with me, Hernando, sometimes you can say something that is a validating comment that has someone see and feel something that they have not been able to speak about or not been able to talk about. And for the first time in their life, and as I call it, you can see like the brain grenade and they go, oh, my God, that's what that was? <laughs> Now, you went in and you did your clinical sexology, correct? Yes. And you did that at the Institute in San Francisco? Yes, I did. Okay. How long did it take you to do it? Uh, It took me approximately two years, um, and that was including the additional coursework that they uh, carried over for my master's program. Oh, okay. So I I didn't do a a dissertation, so I didn't earn the Ph.D. degree. I earned um, basically everything except for... Uh, the dissertation, which was called a DHS, a Doctor of Human Sexuality degree. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I went through all the coursework. I just um, didn't want to write that long report at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, people have asked me why I didn't go and do a PhD and didn't do a master's. And honestly, at the time, it I already had the hard sciences background. And I'd already gone through enough with people doing their masters and PhDs in the hard science area, mm-hmm. and I knew that it was not—it was definitely not for me. <laughs> I was not cut out, and like you, and you know, cubicle phobia—it's <laughs> 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 like you could not. I mean, that is talk about the, you know, round peg in the square hole. Just, just not happening. But let, <laughs> yes. And I had sent you some of these questions before, and. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to find out is, are there, you know, the similarities between what your clients who would come to you and want to address, are these similar questions to what your students would ask? And I'm setting this up a little bit. Today we have the, our LASA meeting. Um, okay, tell me again what it stands for. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that stands for, uh, it's Los Angeles Sexologist Association. And we have these monthly luncheons where we congregate together to network, 
to have presentations, to share information. Uh, we'll do group supervisions uh, with clients. We'll share educational uh, info. Really, it's a support for each other because it's a small field, even though it's a growing field. Um, mm-hmm. Still, there's a, a need for us to be uh, you know, resources to each other. It, it, absolutely. And also, the majority of us are very much lone wolves and do things by ourselves. Sure, sure. Sex can be lonely. Uh, <laughs> Good one. As the masturbators out there would know. Exactly. Well, you know, it's that you know, Woody Allen saying it's sex with someone that you love. Yeah. The, today at the Lassa Luncheon, um, I was speaking with Tristan Taramino, and she made a comment to me that the things, you know, when she first started doing her presentations 15 years ago in colleges, she said she is still getting the same questions from young women in colleges, and that question is when they are non-orgasmic or pre-orgasmic. They've never had an orgasm, and they may have tried vibrators. They may have tried um, taking, you know, prescriptions, something, you know, like try a, uh, a Viagra. They may have tried a very patient partner. They've tried oral. They've tried everything, and they still are not able to orgasm. Now, and we'll cover that after you, if you can tell me, are there similar things that you see as questions being addressed when you went in as a student and that you are now seeing as people coming to you in your practice? Sure. Uh, You know, the students of today are the clients of tomorrow. That's the way I look at it. And (laughs) unfortunately, you know, part of the the reason that comment rings true for a lot of uh, us in the field is that we haven't changed yet the culture of how we use sex and how we learn about sex here in America. Mm-hmm. We have the same you know, abstinence-only education programs that, you know, teach us certain perspectives, uh, but they don't necessarily give us the full gamut of information for people to, you know, be able to make those informed decisions. And we don't necessarily foster a sex-positive and sex-comfortable culture either. So the students 15 years ago are going to be very similar to the students we have today in that they were probably brought up in a an environment that didn't... Um, promote sex as something healthy or something that should be talked about and discussed and learned about. And and, um, so what I've noticed with students today is that a lot of them are looking for permission. They're looking to be normalized. A lot of them Mm -hmm. don't realize that other people are having sex or other people are masturbating or other people are abstinent and not having sex. And so there's a lot of uh, insecurity and and self-judgment that comes from feeling like they are not normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same happens with with clients as well, too. what I've noticed, too, with the students and with clients is that clients maybe have more of a vocabulary and more experience under their belt, so they're able to either seek out services or articulate it better um, mm-hmm. than maybe a student would, but students and, and clients really do struggle with similar issues of relationship difficulties, such as infidelity or jealousy or their needs not getting met or resentment within a relationship, um, you know, also the intimacy uh, of how to interact with their partner on both a verbal, nonverbal, and sexual level. Um, as well as, you know, sexual information and techniques, because that's also something that I think both, you know, have questions about. Uh, things that we talk about uh, to, to our, in our presentations to those in the, in the audience about G-spot, clitoral, um, penile sensitivity, I mean, all these different positions and, and such. Uh, I think people are always looking for more information. Mm-hmm. What, what I found um, when you made that comment of the, that they are, that the clients may have more vocabulary, 
What I have also found, Hernando, is that it does not matter. People think that sexuality education is kind of like this magic time when poof, it stops. Mm -hmm. That couldn't be further from the truth. I have people contacting me, coming up to me in presentations, and they're asking at age 25, 35, 55, 65, the same questions that someone who might be 15 or 25 might ask me. And so we're going to go for a break in probably 10 seconds, and then I will come back with my guest, Dr. Hernando Chavez, and we'll talk about the similarities and dissimilarities to what he and I have found over the past 15 years in the field of sexuality education. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on TogiNet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Hello everybody, this is Pete Dix asking if you'll join me on Beatles and Beyond on this radio station. What a show I've got in store for you. Not only all the Apple reissues that I'll be looking at, some very rare tracks indeed, a report on my evening watching and listening to Neil Innes of the Ruttles and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. So please join me, Pete Dix, with Beatles and Beyond on this radio station. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here this evening with my guest, Dr. Hernando Chavez, and we were talking just before the break on the similarities and differences between what he sees as his students coming in and his clients that come to him in his practice. And one of the things you mentioned, Hernando, is the relationship issues of, you know, how do they contact, how do they, you know, communicate with one another. Can I just be a devil's advocate and ask you a question on that? 
Sure. Do you think that texting is taking away from people's ability to connect when they are physical face-to-face? I would even say not just texting, but technology in general. more advancements we have, I really feel have impacted our ability to communicate as fluidly as we have in the past. Oh, um, thank, it, thank it, you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, it, and it, it's much easier to email and text and phone calls, but, you know, you know 50 years ago, um, we didn't have this technology, so we had to actually write the letter or meet the person for a meeting. And so there's, there's uh, I think, uh, communication-wise, we have gained certain skills, you know, maybe for uh, speedy communication or faster communication, but we've also lost some of those interpersonal communication skills. So it's a double-edged sword, I think, technology and texting. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And for anyone, if you do happen to have a – we're live tonight, 6 to 7 here in Los Angeles, where both myself and Dr. Chavez are, 8 Central Time and 9 to 10 for those of you on the East Coast. You'll be able to listen to these afterwards as a free upload on – download, whichever you want – on iTunes. And I will also have things on my site, www.loupaget.com. You can do my little interactive quiz. And the phone number, if you wish to call, is 877-864-4869. And I'm going to repeat that for you if you, didn't, if you weren't quick with the pen. 877-864-4869. Hernando. I did a presentation with you at your class um, in Orange County, mm-hmm. and one of the things that struck me was the you had taken your students to a number of different places, you know, for them to see, you know, the things that are available within, you know, the world of sexuality education, or for them to look at as part of their class experience. Right, and. The one young woman, when you went to a club, to a dungeon, and it was like she didn't know to put the boundaries into place and of things that were going to might be, you know, too intense for her. And I, I remember you saying you had to step in and say to her, whoa, stop, you know, step back from that. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if the things that people are seeing online end up being what they de facto think is what they should be doing rather than having the awareness of that these things are, you have to literally, you have to be a student in the area of some of these different types of sexual play. Right. And and for that particular example that you brought up, um, it was this over-eagerness to want to try things out and want to immerse themselves into this culture without having that knowledge and that education base that people should have before you enter into anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're right. What we would do with, uh, with the class is they have these op- uh, the ability to attend optional outings um, mm-hmm. that are out in the public, whether they're research or presentations, whether they're uh, uh, clubs that, you know, demonstrate maybe some unique type of sexuality or, or uh, uh, sexual expression. And, um, you know, they, it's, a, it's a different form of learning. It's, it's, I think the evolution of academia is not just in the classroom uh, but it's also experiencing things. So that's actually something that I incorporate in my class, too, is activity learning assignments where they have to experience something in the, in the field, uh, in life, and then write about it afterwards. So they process it in their papers. So I think that's where academia has been headed, and that's actually the institute was the uh, school that taught me that, too, that you can learn from through your experience and not just through reading a book. 
Mm-hmm. Now, tell people what the Institute is and where it is and the full name and all that sort of good stuff about it. Sure. Uh, the Institute um, that we're referring to is actually called the Institute for the Advanced Study for Human Sexuality, and it's in San Francisco, uh, California, and uh, it's a private institution that I would, I would say is a very postmodern and uh, uh, cutting-edge type of institution where they instruct, teach, educate uh, for clinical sexology, and they offer both PhDs, EDDs, and also uh, DHSs and masters as well, too, in the field of human sexuality. And part of their curriculum is exposure through media, exposure through experiential learning, um, just as we were talking about, in addition to reading and presentations and, uh, you know, formal, more formalized education, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Is there... Just to go to you, and then I'm going to jump to the the uh, question, the thing that I was discussing this afternoon at LASA with Tristan. Was there anything in your training at the Institute that surprised you? Okay. Uh, there was actually a lot that surprised me. Um, you know, coming from a, a – there's a lot. I won't be – I'll be honest. <laughs> coming from a Catholic background where, uh, you know, I was the altar boy growing up, I was – uh, attended a Catholic institution from kindergarten through 12th grade, and then also my master's program was a Catholic uh, school as well, too. Um, so I really had a very, I guess you could say, more strict or more narrow um, academic path. And so the Institute was a much more open-minded atmosphere, uh, mm-hmm. like the use of ex- media or the, the use of group process for um you know, for some of the issues we discussed, and it was it was much different than the traditional programs I had experienced in the past. I guess the way I talk, I, I like to describe it is it's immersive learning instead mm-hmm. of the traditional ex- external learning. Mm-hmm. So it really did. You kind of had to jump head first into there, and, and you know, there are things that um, I had never experienced before. I mean, growing up Catholic, uh, I had not too much experience with people who were homosexual. I have not didn't have family members or friends or whatnot that were homosexual. So that was my first experience of meeting people who were homosexual or uh, seeing depictions of homosexual art. And it was very challenging in that it taught me about how I need to fight through some of those discomforts or those um, initial anxieties and how this is something that I need to work through and process in order to be a better sex therapist and sexologist. Mm-hmm. Um, did you also find that... I mean, I'm finding this myself, that there is a much broader definition, you know, if you would say a definition buffet of how people will describe, um, define, or identify their own sexuality, much more so than it ever used to be with the binary thing of, you know, you are female or you are male. And the interests now, you know, the gender querying, the gender fluidity, the bisexuality, all of which, if, you know, if this is how someone identifies, that's how they identify. And much more so now, we are giving people the validation. Remember you had spoken, you know, initially of normalizing of behaviors mm-hmm. and letting people know, hey, you know, you are not alone. That can sometimes be one of the most powerful things you can tell someone. Oh, it really can be. Mm-hmm. Now, for you as a Latin male, what are the? Because I know that I have, you know, people who have had questions about things have wanted to speak to a, you know, a trained therapist in this area who is of your background. Mm-hmm. 
what would be for, in particular, I'm going to speak, you know, from a, a, a male perspective, what has been, what, the, what are the nuances of treatment that you are aware of being multilingual and bicultural? Well, today, one of the biggest uh, variables and factors that are being expressed and talked about and taught in, in, within education and within uh, therapy training programs is the idea uh, and the importance of culture and um, being able to uh, discuss diversity issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, for people, especially the clients, uh, they're looking to trust somebody. They're looking to uh, find comfort you know, with it because it's a scary thing to is to be in a therapy session for your first time, you mm-hmm. want to try to find some type of relationship, um, you know, build a relationship with the therapist. And, and oftentimes, similarity is something that people can find common ground on. And, and that's where uh, the cultural aspects can really be helpful. Some mm-hmm. people will respond to uh, the culture of maybe uh, sexuality. Maybe it's uh, a homosexual uh, client would feel more comfortable with the homosexual therapist versus a heterosexual. It could be uh, based on sex. Maybe a, a female might be more comfortable with the female therapist. And so our culture, I think, is more than just the um, culture that we typically think of with Latin or with uh, Hispanic or black or white. Mm-hmm. I think it can be expressed um, in a number of different subcultures as well, too. And here's an example I had with a, a, a teenager I was working with who was um, struggling with something called RAD, uh, Reactive Attachment Disorder. Mm-hmm. So he had a very difficult upbringing that made connecting with others very difficult for him and, and uh, had some anger issues as well. And he had been through five or six therapists uh, before me, um, and same things in his notes. would uh, They would describe how he wasn't able to connect, he wouldn't answer questions, wouldn't participate, and was doing the exact same things with me. And I realized that when we talked about his strengths and his desires, one of the things that he mentioned was basketball. Mm-hmm. So I figured out that maybe the, his culture wasn't so much about his, identi- his identity with sexually or his identity, uh, uh, whether it's religiously, his culture was basketball. And so we actually started having our sessions out on a basketball court, and we would play a game where if I made a shot, he would answer my question. If I That's missed brilliant. it, he'd have to That is brilliant. And, you know, the kids started talking, and it really just moved things along, and we created a trust and a bond through that culture of basketball. Mm-hmm. Now, can you describe for people what you would define what diversity issues are? Sure. Uh, diversity issues would be, you know, characterized as things that, that separate people from being all, uh, all of one. I guess that's the most simplest way I can put it. So diversity can be an orientation, it can be gender, it can be sex, it can be mm-hmm. um, like the subculture like you discussed with basketball. And the importance of diversity is understanding that we're all diverse, but then the importance is also to understand that, it, that we need to learn about each other's diversity in order to better understand our fellow person. And, and to find a common ground, which is one of the things that when I was on the National Advisory Council with Dr. David Satcher, looking for a common ground of discussion and understanding um, in the area of sexuality. Now, we're going to go for a break in probably about 15 seconds, and when we come back, Dr. Hernando Chavez and I are going to be discussing more the issues of circumcision, to or not to, the other things that go back to the question of uh, what are young women still struggling with that we haven't gotten the answers for them. And we will be back in a minute or so. Please stay with us.
This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Renowned and gifted psychic medium, Sylvia Rossi, explores the mysteries of this life, the afterlife, and the unseen world that surrounds us all in the show called Make Contact with Sylvia Rossi, Wednesdays at 2, 1 p.m. Central here on Toginet. Sylvia Rossi with her special guests and other fellow psychics invite you to call in and make contact with the world beyond and get answers to your questions. Psychic medium Sylvia Rossi has been sharing her gift professionally for the last 17 years. Sylvia has made it her mission to help individuals and families understand their eternal connection to loved ones that have passed on, bringing relief and comfort to countless souls who have been touched by her gift. She's had the privilege of meeting and working with many psychologists who continue to recommend their clients to her when conventional methods have failed. Now it's your turn to make contact with host and psychic medium Sylvia Rossi. Wednesdays at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. A live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 Central on Toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo. Dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes. Quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Levinsky. Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with a colleague of mine, Dr. Hernando Chavez. And before we broke, we were speaking of some of the things that he has found, you know, are the most typical questions that will be asked and then also the things that he has done and put together for his students in the courses that he teaches. So and on the break, you were going to ask me a question, and then we got cut off. So what was, what was the question you were going to ask me? Uh, I was going to ask you just to, um, in response to the, the most common questions that both students and clients have asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to bring that up because uh, it seems like for men, the most common questions that I receive, and I also write for AskMen.com, and I do their sexuality Q&A. So mm-hmm. these are also email responses from people all over the world. And men are just fixated on penis size and mm-hmm. rapid ejaculation. Mm-hmm. I get those 90% of the time the questions are about those two topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for women, it's often been about 
uh, orgasm, as we mentioned, and also um, lacking of intimacy or their needs being met within a relationship. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like those four are just extremely powerful in our society today. Well, you know, to go to the, you know, the women not being able to have orgasms, that is something that this would have been 12 years ago. I was in the boardroom of Cosmo Magazine, and Kate White was the editor-in-chief, and I had been asked to come in and do a presentation to the staffers because I was, they were using me as the expert so regularly with, you know, the, my five books, 28 languages, 60 countries, and the staffers were asking me questions and were sitting around this big table, and I turned to Kate and I said, so tell me, what is your most common question and she put her head back and she just closed her eyes and she said how can I have an orgasm during intercourse my boyfriend tells me all his other girlfriends have always had orgasms and things haven't much <laughs> no they <laughs> have not and here's what I say in response to that question and then I want to hear what you say and then we'll touch on what Tristan was talking about what I tell them is chances are all of his previous girlfriends did not have orgasms with penetrative intercourse. That is not the way the majority of women orgasm the most easily. Some women do, but for the majority, it is more manual and oral stimulation, which is you know the key to the so-called kingdom. Secondly, chances are the women who he may have been with before um, were faking which is more likely than not. Thirdly, we have an issue of an age difference. So often, women are being sexual with someone who might be a year to two to, you know, a number of years older than they are. So they're being told that their body is to respond a particular way when it isn't. And the reason it isn't is that the action of intercourse itself isn't the one that's the most pleasurable for most women. Now, what and how would you respond to that? Um, I would actually, I, I love exactly what you said. I would agree with everything you've mentioned. And um, part of it also, too, is that we view sex and pleasure from a male perspective, and it's almost a male-dominated view, which is penile vaginal intercourse is maybe a, a, a great way for a male to achieve orgasm. You know, from a stimulation perspective, it's stimulating his penis um, and his shaft and his foreskin and his head. Mm-hmm. But for a female, that's not the, the ultimate way or the, the uh, optimum way, excuse me, for a female to achieve orgasm because her sensory nerve endings would be located externally. They're not, you know, if the clitoris was inside of the, uh, the, the vaginal canal, maybe intercourse would be great for everyone. But that's not how we were made. <laughs> exactly. It is so not. <laughs> and thank you no. for making that comment on. No, please continue. Is there more to add to that? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, there was a movie that came out in the 70s, a very popular one called Deep Throat, where the mm-hmm. male fantasy or, or the, the premise of the movie was the clitoris was in the back of a female's throat, um, which, of course, is not there as well. But then that, you know, if, if that were true, of course, oral sex would be something that would be mutually pleasurable as well, too. So we really have to start having a conversation about the reality of our bodies anatomically from a sensory uh, perspective, from a, a pleasure perspective, and really be honest about the fact that it's not so limiting about intercourse. Thank you. Thank you. Now, and just to highlight on the uh, fantasy section of the clitoris in the back of a woman's throat, in the 70s, that was the desired fantasy thing for the majority of men to have a woman, you know, perform oral sex. 
and mm-hmm. in all actuality, um, it just so this is another man's fantasy of the reason she'd really enjoy it is because her clitoris is in the back of her throat. Mm. Right. Now, and going back to the disconnect on here we have, and, and thank you for bringing up the thing on the male-dominated view of sexual function. We really do have, we human beings are a crazy group, you know. We have the male perspective on what sexual function is, which is, Arousal is an erection, um, there's a change in respiration, there is an orgasm, there is ejaculation, and that is the premise of that's how sexual function is supposed to occur. Well, that isn't how it occurs for women. So here, just to, if people can, in their minds, use this, male sexual function and stimulation tends to be more like straight up like a little mountain, boom, orgasm mm-hmm. down. And female sexual stimulation tends to be more of a more gradual build-up. So it's more of a build, plateau, build, plateau, go on to orgasm, go on to whatever one prefers. But if it's too much, too quickly, which is what I say in my presentations, people touch the way they like to be touched. So men will often touch more firmly and more directly to action spots because that's what they do with themselves. Whereas for women... That intensity can be too much, and once things start to hurt, particularly genitally, it's almost impossible to go back to feeling okay. So mm-hmm. the male model doesn't really, it, it sort of beats women up because it doesn't take into account what female sexual response is. Now let's add into it, when we go to relationships, relationship and the way of perceiving it is very much a female-centric or female, you know, attitude of this is how relationships should be. It should be about this. It should feel like that. So what ends up happening is men get beaten up in that model. Well, oh. thank you for saying that as well, too. The guys are clapping in the background. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as I said, we human beings are just a crazy group. You know, so, you know, but what we have to do is... Go ahead. Uh, I've mentioned this a few times to people about how, um, you know, there is differences when it comes to relationships and the perspectives of how, what is the, the optimal relationship or the healthiest relationship. And it, it does have, you know, female characteristics sprinkled on there. And that is difficult for guys. Uh, one particular aspect is the best friend scenario. You know, a lot of women want their partner, their male partner, if it's a heterosexual relationship, they want them to be their best friend. They want them to be their confidant to, to talk with and confide in. They want to take them to the ballet and the, the musical shows and really... Sometimes the best, you know, trying to make your partner your best friend can actually work against you because oh. is that completely there's a lot of men who aren't. Yeah. Well, what it ends up also doing is creating um, that there's no mystery. Right. And you know, um, Esther Perel's, you know, mating in captivity. Ian Kerner's, you know, she comes first, he comes second, and both of them address the issue of you cannot have someone be everything for you. And here's the other thing. Women are walking, talking relationship machines. That's what we do. <laughs> we wake up in the morning and that's what we do. Men tend to be walking, talking competition machines. That doesn't tend to make, you know, and men don't use nearly as many words during the day as women do. Women can do much more communicating, either with visual with, and with the voice. So, and this thing, of, I think we need to give everybody a break on the male-dominated sexual side of looking at things and the female-dominant way of looking at relationships. 
It's time for people to make up their own rules. <laughs> Find their own path. <laughs> do, their, do their own thing on it. Now, I, I, <laughs> when I was speaking with Tristan Tarmino earlier today, and she said the thing that for the past 15 years she's had the similar question, and she said, I've told these women about vibrators, I've shown them things, and she said, still, nothing is happening. And one of the things, and we're seeing more of this, Hernando, is the impact of meds on people's sexual function. Oh, and sure. I, I asked her, I said, do these young women have an awareness that their birth control pill can be wiping out their libido? And she said, you know, I, that, that wasn't on, you know, that wasn't something that, you know, she'd been speaking to them. Particularly, Yaz, Y and Y-A-S-M-I-N, Yasmin, and it's generic, Osella, anecdotally, and I can also tell you from online stuff, it is totally turning down women's libidos. And I have the example of a young woman who, was, who works in a uh, mammography for mammograms clinic in Santa Monica. So she is around women and physicians and women's bodies all day long. And I went in to have my you know, annual mammogram and they grabbed her and they said, come and talk to Lou. Now, what struck me with that, Hernando, is Here's this young woman who is medically trained and within an environment with women and women's bodies, and no one had the information. She had just gotten married. She was from a very, um, from an Armenian family background and very strict, and she said, I do not know what has happened. I want, I, I was so turned on by my before we were married. She said, then, you know, she said, all of a sudden it's gone, and they'd only been married five months. And wow. yeah, and I asked her. I said, "Are you on birth control?" And she said, "Well, yes, because we don't want to start a family right away." And I said, "What is it?" And she told me. And I said, "That's your answer." Now, I'm the one who's a patient coming in, but because I am that, you know, I am the certified sex educator and the best-selling author. That's why I was the go-to person, because we know in our field the majority of physicians get little to none if they get eight hours and four years of med school on sexual health. That's a lot, and it's often optional. So I think you know, there's so much more work out there to tell people you may need to tweak something else. The other thing you and I look at is the antidepressants and also the so-called smart drugs that are being taken um, in colleges, the Adderall and the Ritalin. And on that happy note, we are going to take a break, and we will be back right after to continue with Sex Talk with Lou with Dr. Hernando Chavez. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. 
Come learn with me as the show created as much for the host as the audience. Join host Danny Walker, Wednesdays at 11, noon central, on toginet.com, as she invites you to get your boots on and walk through life's triumphs and troubles with her. Come learn with me as the beginning of a movement, a community filled with caring people who share information, allowing everyone to participate, gain, and grow. What works? What doesn't? Your host, Danny Walker, is a self-proclaimed student, not expert, and she'll share very candidly passions, perspectives, failures, her family's battle with illness, her restaurant inspirations to keep being a wife, parent, and more, all the while including industry experts, disease survivors, and guests to add to the mix. For more on Danny and her show, go to dannywalker.com, D-A-N-I walker.com. If you've ever searched high and low to find answers to sickness, disease, and debt, come learn with me and let's get our questions answered together. Come learn with me with host Danny Walker, Wednesdays at 11, noon central on toginet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here this evening with my guest, Dr. Hernando Chavez. And before the break, we were discussing um, the range of uh, different ideas and things. And what we are going to talk about now is the issues of the meds and the impact on sexual function for particularly for young men is, is the, where I'm going to go with the Adderall, Ritalin, that are being used as smart drugs, which are rendering these college-age males with issues of erectile difficulty. Hernando, you jump in on this one? Sure. Um, and, and I would even actually add not only erectile difficulty, but also orgasm difficulty and ejaculation difficulties. Um, I'm seeing a lot of delayed ejaculation issues that are occurring in young men as well, too, along with those erectile issues. And, you know, the, 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 the culture we have in medicine today, at least in America, of a pill will cure this or we'll pop a pill for that side effect and we'll right. just keep medicating and medicating, it's, it's got to have some long-term uh, side effects that are going to be impacting people not only on a sexual uh, perspective but from, like, a, a medical or physiological perspective. And exactly. we're not going to enough to talk about it. Now, it's not good enough to put it out in the, in the discussion that needs to be had. Right. Now, what are the meds that they are taking that is delaying ejaculation? Is it the antidepressants? 
It's mostly the antidepressants, and, and even there are, are medications that could be um, that are not specifically for mental health issues. Um, people, for instance, uh, can take uh, some heart medications. There's a, a hair loss medication called Propecia that can also oh have. Oh my gosh! It wipes out. Yeah. It just goes in its libido, which libido also impacts both mental functioning of, of the idea of, of wanting to have sex and needing that, that psychological arousal to help with erection or to help with uh, the arousal mechanisms to reach orgasm and such. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot out there. And, and unfortunately, most doctors aren't really discussing some of those side effects. It's more of something that's written in the fine print, you know, on those huge pieces of paper that are inside of your medication boxes mm-hmm. um, that most people don't go through to read. and a small one or two lines to talk about sexual functioning or uh, it's, it's unfortunate there's not more uh, discussion from doctors as well too. Well, you know, the other thing that I, you know, for anyone who wants to contact a trained um, sexuality educator or therapist, the organization, the largest certifying organization that both Dr. Chavez and I belong to is ASEC and that's www.aasect. And that stands for the American Association Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. They are throughout the world, concentrating mainly in North America. Um, And what you can do is go on and find someone within your area or find someone who is specializing in the area of something you wish to address. And they can, you know, you you can find, there are places where you can go if you do have questions about um, sexuality issues. One of the things I think people also have to know when we talk about the Propecia is Propecia, not the, the operating thing with Propecia, is it's a, an, an androgen blocker? Is that how it operates? To stop uh, hair loss? I'm not, I, yeah, and, I, and it also it stimulates the um, production of DHT, which is for hair follicles to, uh, uh, I guess, produce an enzyme to allow it to live longer to not fall out. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well... On that happy note, let's go to something that does work and that people are looking forward to. What is your most requested optional outing by your students? Okay. Um, you know, the students like to challenge themselves. They definitely like to take it um, a step beyond maybe where they're at. And so they, they oftentimes kink is something that they're very much interested in. Um, they'll see movies that are on the mainstream, like, for instance, not even just movies, but also in the in the media as well. Music videos will often feature people in leather or people with whips or floggers or, or you know, some type of BDSM um, uh, paraphernalia or outfit. And can you describe for people what BDSM is? Uh, BDSM is a, a four-letter acronym that stands for six terms. So the first B is for bondage. Mm-hmm. D has two terms. It would be for discipline, domination. Mm-hmm. The S would be for um, submission, sadism, mm-hmm. and the M is for masochism. So those six terms. And bondage would be uh, restraints. Discipline would be rules and, and punishments associated with those rules. Um, domination and submission would be the, uh, kind of the yin and yang of, of power play. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadomasochism would be sadism is inflicting pain for erotic pleasure, and masochism is receiving pain for erotic pleasure. Right. And there is a lot you can do with those six terms. <laughs> man, oh man, <laughs> we were having that discussion earlier today at LASA. Now, so they want to challenge themselves. They want to see things you were talking about, the, the films, or, and, and I interrupted you. 
Sure. They, they see, let's say, like a, a Lady Gaga video where they have, you know, certain mm-hmm. type of BSM uh, behaviors that are being mimicked or clothing, and so they do want to explore that that world. Um, and so there are places that you can explore that in a safe manner. There are p- public fetish clubs, public dungeon clubs. Um, they inter- they intertwine a club scene with music and dancing, but also people will dress up in some of these, you know, uh, this, this outfits, and sometimes they have performances as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people are interested, it, it's very important for someone to educate themselves by reading books, by watching instructional DVDs, by finding a mentor out in the community who can help, you know, immerse them into understanding the basics of and the safety measures because um, the motto of the BDSM community is SSC, which is safe, sane, and consensual. Mm-hmm. And so those three pieces that have to be the foundation before anybody can ever engage in any behavior or explore uh, within the, the kink community. Well, and here's the other thing that I think that vanilla, which is, non-kink world, Vanilla can learn a tremendous amount from kink in that with someone within these um, sexual preferences, things are very negotiated and they know exactly how they want to feel and they know what they would like to do. And so they are clear and I think that the Vanilla world could learn a lot from knowing exactly what it is they would like to try or what they would like to experience. That's a great point. Um, a lot, of, a lot of people don't do those experimentations to find out what really turns them on or what really feels good for their body. They, they just go with the status quo that everyone else is doing. Oftentimes, right. in the vanilla world, right? And, uh, and, and communication is exquisite in in the kink community. I mean, they will sit there and talk specifically and uh, very detail oriented when it comes to to behaviors and and like minded interests to see if they're compatible with partners. Mm-hmm. Now, when we speak of, you know, people looking at the clothes of what might be in a video, what I think people have to realize is someone like Alexander McQueen, a lot of his stuff came straight out of the kink world. I mean, his lobster claw shoes, those Mm -hmm. were like like a bondage-type shoe. When you Mm -hmm. look at the majority of the platform shoes now, everything that's been out in the last three years, those, those previously were straight out of what a, you know, someone who was walking on a stage and doing, you know, who were stripping and doing anything with pole work would be wearing those shoes. Those are exactly those same shoes. Yes. (laughs) Now, is there, where would you, and if you had your choice of creating a course for students, what, what would be your number one area that you would like them to know most about and that would give them the best grounding if they want to go into the field of sexuality education? Sure. Um, you know, I would recommend people to go to school and to expose themselves to different uh, experiences when it comes to and educational models when it comes to sexuality. And thankfully, and you know, as compared to maybe 20 years ago, today we have a number of schools that offer uh, degrees that are focusing either on with minors or with majors on uh, human sexuality, and, and that wasn't the case, you know, a few decades ago. So it's, it's good to see wasn't. that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, firsthand. I mean, it was very rare to find a human sexuality program here in the in the states. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would recommend for people, and and to step outside of their box because we have a a certain modality 
in a comfort zone that oftentimes people in America don't step away from. And if you look at other cultures, they have a much broader sense of, of what it is to be sexual comfort, comfortable. You look at uh, Western, I'm sorry, uh, uh, European countries, Germany, Holland, Denmark, all these places have such open-minded cultures where they start teaching children from a young age, you know, age-appropriate sexual information so that when they grow up, sex is not something that is all of a sudden bombarded on them when they're 18 or when they're getting married. Uh, right, and, really and the, the important thing is age-appropriate. Age-appropriate, yes. Now, let me, I know I have heard a presentation that you and uh, Dr. Wilde did on circumcision. Tell the world yes. what they need to know. Okay. Um, my personal belief is that male circumcision uh, isn't something that is necessary to do. Um, there are cultural factors and religious factors associated, which are to people's belief systems, but from a physiological perspective or a health perspective, um, it's not something that I believe is necessary. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate because there is so much that the foreskin has to offer. From a pleasure perspective, um, the foreskin has the highest concentration of Meisner corpuscle nerve endings that we have on the male body. And unfortunately, with circumcision, that's, you know, amputated in a sense. And right, never and tell people what the Meisner corpuscles are. Um, if you could do an exercise, actually, everybody out there. If you take one of your hands and use the other hand to touch the outside of your fingers, so basically the top part of your hand, you can feel the sensation. But then if you switch to the inside part of your hand where the palm is, you'll notice that there's a lot more sensitivity. And if you really, you know, close your eyes and feel the difference, you can tell that the palm itself is much, much more sensitive. And there are Meissner corpuscle nerve endings in your palm. So okay. imagine that's your foreskin. Um, you know, the, the British Journal of Urology did a study in 2006 where they published the five most sensitive points on a penis were actually on the foreskin. And, and for, and for, for uncircumcised, they're intact. Right, they're intact. Now, we're going to, and on the note of talking about the most sensitive part of the intact male penis, which is why for many men who are circumcised, the circumcision scar site is the most sensitive because that's the only remaining Meisner corpuscles. But I want people exactly. to know I, there is information that you do not have to. You can get medical validation. You do not have to. It is up to you. It's cultural. Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for being with me this evening. And if anyone has more questions for either myself or for Dr. Chavez, you can reach me at office at loupaget.com. Thanks so much for being here with Sex Talk with Loop. Bye for now. Thank you for being a part of Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with host Lou Paget. Every week, this will be your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Join Lou Paget. She will